Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, it is almost the end of February. This time of year is often hard for me because it's cold, it's bleak, and it's pretty far from spring or my favorite holidays. So I hope today's tale will help with the dreariness a little by making you feel like you're sitting by a cozy hearthside with wind and rain pattering the windows. This folktale is Scottish, very Scottish, and full of storm and fire. This folktale is a little off-brand for this podcast, similar to the Silky Wife tale I looked at last season, because it's not a fairy tale. It differs from traditional fairy tales in two key ways. It mentions specific, real places, most fairy tales don't. And second, it tells the origin of something, which makes it an etiological tale. So the word I'm using is E-T-I-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L, if you're curious. Anyone who wants to retell this story will need to take those aspects into account in how they adapt and incarnate this tale into a new work of art. The name of this folktale is Aspital and the Store Worm. As usual, I'll read my own iteration of the folktale out loud, and then I'll examine a few of the images of the story in the light of scripture, letting the truth and beauty, wisdom, and mystery of the word of God illuminate the tale's meaning and guide the creative decisions that would go into a retelling. The images I'll talk about are the title character, Aspital, a lad of dreams and ashes the sea dragon itself, and the battle in the belly of the beast. Aspital and the Storeworm Once upon a time in the land of Scotland lived a boy, the seventh son of the seventh son, The lad was scorned by his family for his habit of sitting in the ashes of the fire each night, staring at the flames, daydreaming. They called him Aspidal, which means one who sits among the ashes. A time of dread then fell on the country, for a great and wicked sea dragon began to prey on its shores. This beast was called the Storeworm, and it devoured house and farm, abbey and village, castle and kirk on the coast, with teeth and flame. Nothing seemed to satisfy its appetite. Nothing could pierce its scales or escape its claws, for it was great as a mountain and fierce as a thunderstorm. The king consulted a sorcerer. The Storeworm will leave your people alone, said the sorcerer, if you provide it with seven maidens to eat every week. The king hated to sacrifice daughters of his people this way, but he had no other means to protect the rest. For months, seven maidens were sent to a cliff each week, and the storeworm devoured them. But the people cried out at the loss of their daughters. Can we satisfy the monster any other way? The king asked the sorcerer. Give the storeworm your own daughter, the princess, and it will leave your shores forever, said the sorcerer. The king was stricken at the thought of sacrificing his beloved daughter, his only child. But the faces of the fathers and mothers who had already sacrificed their own daughters rose before him, and he could not refuse. He sent word throughout the land that any who could slay the dragon and rescue his daughter would marry her and become king after him. Many heroes rose up to take the challenge, but no arrow, be it forged of steel or dipped with poison, could penetrate the monster's scales. No spear, be it thrown by the strongest arm, did more than bounce off. 
Many fell in flame or were snatched up as further offerings to the storeworm, who only grew in wrath with, with each attempt. I will defeat the storeworm, Aspital told his family. I will marry the princess and become king. Aspital's brothers roared with laughter. A lazy dreamer like you, they scoffed. Stay by the fire where you belong. But the morning that the king's daughter was sentenced to be sacrificed, Aspital quietly packed up a chunk of peat, a torch, tinder, and flint. One morning, as dawn lit the sea, he took his family's rowboat and rowed out to where the storeworm slept just below the waves. As Aspital approached, the storeworm yawned a great yawn, its terrible teeth glinting. The yawn sucked in water as fiercely as the tide, and with the water was swept in Aspital and his rowboat. Aspital lit his torch and rode through the belly of the beast. He found the storeworm's liver. He touched the torch to the peat so it lit, fierce and bright, and used it to set the creature's liver aflame. The storeworm roared at the terrible fire that lit it from within. It coughed and coughed and coughed Aspital and his rowboat right out of its mouth without noticing. But the fire spread within and devoured the dragon's whole self. It thrashed as it died. Its mighty teeth fell into the sea and became the islands, the Orkneys, the Shetlands, and the Faroe Islands. Its body gradually became still and turned to stone and became the island of mist and mountains that we call Iceland, fire still blazing at its core. Aspital rode clear of the storeworm's death, reached the coast, and rescued the princess. The wicked sorcerer who had given such evil counsel fled the castle to a faraway land. The king made Aspital his heir and married the dragon slayer to the princess, and they lived happily ever after. I love this tale. I love a good dragon slaying story, a rescue, a battle, and a wedding. I love the etiological aspect that I talked about. I never made it to the Orkneys or the Shetlands or the Faroe Islands in Scotland, but I did visit a couple of the Hebrides, the islands in the west, and I've hiked in Iceland, and I can confirm that if any places were made from dragon, it would be those. They're very lonely and very majestic. As I said, I'll talk about Aspital, the sea dragon, and the battle in the beast in the light of scripture, letting the Bible help us understand what's going on here and how an artist could use that in a retelling. First, Aspital himself. As I talked about in season one, fairy tales as a genre are intentionally flat and simple, a lot like stained glass windows. The beauty of a fairy tale is in its clarity and archetypal images, not in psychologically complex characters or lengthy prose. What I love about the character of Aspital is that the details we're given about him are so rich with meaning. First, he's the seventh son of the seventh son. Seven, the number of perfection specified in the book of Revelation, um, but also in the rest of scripture. And that number is doubled. In lore, a seventh son is going to be special in some way. And the seventh son of the seventh son, even more so. He's scorned by his family, by his brothers. In writing my own iteration of this tale, I was struck by that again, because the brother mocked by his brothers is a scriptural archetype. Joseph of the Coat of Many Colors is the favorite son who's sold into slavery by his brothers in Genesis 37. David the shepherd receives some pretty harsh insults from his brother Eliab when David shows up and wonders why everyone's so afraid of this giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. 
Aspidal is a dreamer. That's another scriptural archetype. Joseph of the Coat of Many Colors was a dreamer and an interpreter of dreams. So was Daniel, the prophet in Babylon, in the book of Daniel. Joseph, the stepfather of the Lord Jesus, dreamed. I wondered at this point if it might be fun and interesting to do a quick scriptural or theological study of daydreaming and dreaming, but I think that topic is too big for this episode. I'll just point out that in the Bible, dreams are often prophetic, and many of them come in the structure of a fairy tale, like Pharaoh's dream of the corn and the cows in Genesis 41, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue in Daniel 2. So Aspidal is scorned for something that, that could be a vice, could be a laziness in daydreaming, but night dreams are sometimes linked to divine revelation. Last, Aspidal sits among the ashes. He's kind of a male Cinderella figure in that way. Uh, his name, uh, which as a side note, any retelling, you're going to have to figure out what to do about that name. It sounds terrible. It can't be made into a nickname, but it means ash and piddle, which has the sense of paddle. It's the motion of a fish in water. Ashes are a product of fire. Note that the theme of fire runs through this whole tale. There's a famous line in the burial service from the Book of Common Prayer, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, which serves as a reminder that God formed man from the dust, and because of the fall, we die and return to dust. In Job 42.6, and I'll talk about Job in the next segment, Job repents at the end in dust and ashes as a sign of repentance and humility. So ashes and charcoal and embers, these are symbols of home and the hearth fire, which in rainy and windy Scotland is very important. Uh, symbols of destruction and of ruined cities and civilizations, of lost beauty and grandeur. Symbols of death. Symbols of man made in the image of God, fallen but still very loved. Images of repentance and humiliation. And evidence, of course, of the necessary and dangerous, sometimes comforting, sometimes terrifying presence of fire. Aspidal, a daydreamer who sits among the ashes. I could see an artist going in a lot of directions with Aspidal. I would dig deeply into the images here, maybe the connections with Joseph, with both Josephs even, and with Daniel. Um, and the concrete images just of ash and fire themselves, which are very beautiful. The noble and ignoble aspects of daydreaming and connection to desire and potentially laziness. Our culture celebrates the idea of the lonely and despised individual who rises up to victory and puts to shame everyone who doubted him. That's the underlying structure of almost every biopic, for example. And I can envision a retelling that does that. Aspital shows them all uh, and proves himself. But biblically, any noble character needs to look like Christ, who did not work to glorify himself, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, 6 through 11. That would be my recommendation for any artist retelling this tale. Work within the scriptural tradition of dreams and ashes and fire. But if you want this to be a really great character, he has to imitate Jesus. He has to choose self-sacrifice. 
Second image, the dragon in the sea. I love this image almost more than the image of Aspidal himself because sea dragons are very biblical and also very dramatic. For this image, I did a study of Job 41, the Leviathan passage. I'll read it out loud and then I'll share just a couple of thoughts about how you can honor this biblical image when you're retelling this folktale. This passage is the second and final section of a speech that's directly from the Lord God, addressing the main character, Job, out of the whirlwind. So these words are the words of the Almighty. Job 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, slingstones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. For context, I'll give a brief summary of the book of Job to help establish what this speech is and why it's there. This book tells the story of Job, a blameless and upright man who becomes the target of calamity. Satan, the adversary, challenges God that Job is faithful only because God has blessed Job. God allows Satan to strike Job by killing his ten children, destroying his considerable wealth of herds and flocks, and striking him with loathsome sores. 
Most of the book is taken by long poetic speeches of debate from Job's friends, his three friends. Uh, they showed up to comfort him, and instead they end up arguing that he is being punished for wickedness. Well, Job defends his own righteousness and tries to reason out the cause of his suffering and the purposes of God. Job proclaims the greatness, wisdom, and might of God. He doesn't curse God as Satan predicted. But Job does question his friend's certainty that the wicked always perish and the righteous always prosper. So for example, in chapter 21, verse 7, he says, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Uh, and there's a long portion after that as well. In chapter 32, a fourth speaker, Elihu, shows up. And I, I believe Elihu is the best representative of truth here, but I'm not going to get into his section here. In chapter 38, the Lord himself speaks out of the whirlwind. Verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? End quote. And a whole series of challenging questions for Job, including who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? I'm just taking out pieces of poetry from this long and very beautiful speech. All questions that highlight the nature of God as creator, sustainer, and king over creation and all its creatures. After the Lord's first speech, Job declares that he has nothing more to say. He goes silent. And the Lord challenges him a second time. So chapter 40, verse 7 through 8. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? End quote. And um, a similar uh, set of challenges. Next, the Lord describes behemoth, an unknown land slash river creature in its greatness. And then the Lord describes Leviathan in chapter 41. Directly after the Leviathan passage in chapter 42, Job acknowledges the rightness of God's words and he repents. And the Lord commands the three friends to repent and have Job pray for them and they offer sacrifice uh, because they did not represent the Lord rightly. And then the Lord blesses Job with 10 more children and double the possessions he lost. Context is always key, and uh, never more so than for this chapter, because the Lord is not describing the Leviathan just to convey some information like an encyclopedia. This whole passage is part of a challenge to Job to understand that Job is a man and God is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the whole world. Each attribute of the Leviathan, the strong neck, the impenetrable back, the fiery breath, its terror and its might, drive home the weakness of mankind and the greatness of the God who made this creature. Structurally, I see three main sections in the passage. Verses 1-8 through eight question whether Job can tame or conquer the Leviathan, the answer pretty clearly being no. Verses 9-11 through 11 build into summary questions that point to the Lord's sovereignty over creation. And then verses 12 through 34 keep going with a detailed description of the Leviathan's mighty shape and terrible power. The emphasis of this structure, the overwhelming and repetitive theme that is driven home by a lot of detail, is that the Leviathan is invincible by men, and therefore the God who made Leviathan is truly the Almighty. I find that middle section, verses 9 through 11, the most helpful as to why we get this very long description of this creature. So I'll read those again. 
Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I read and reread this passage and I started to wonder, why does the Lord continue past this point, past verse 11? Uh, The longest section is by far verses 12 through 34, that exhaustive description of the Leviathan. I will not keep silent concerning uh, the Leviathan's features. Hasn't the Lord already proved the point that he, of his greatness, um, because he's created this creature? I'm still meditating on it a bit. I think there, there may be layers here that I'm sensing that I can't, I can't name yet. But I believe that one thing that becomes clear in verses 12 through 34 is that men cannot defeat the Leviathan in battle. This creature that God made is invincible, at least to humans, and therefore how much greater its creator. We human beings have no right to question the Almighty, no matter how much we've suffered. The final verse of chapter 41 is also significant. Verse 34, he, the Leviathan, sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. I'll go back to chapter 40. So just before the behemoth and Leviathan passages, uh, one of the Lord's challenges to Job is, quote, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him, end quote. The implication being that Job is not God, so he can't. If the Leviathan is king over the sons of pride and the Lord created Leviathan, Job's pride in questioning the authority and character of God is all the more foolish. This passage gives us several precious gifts. Ironically, the very heavy-hitting emphasis on the Leviathan's fearsome qualities can be a comfort to us, because as powerful as this creature is, its power proves God's even greater power, the God who loves us and wants us to repent, like Job, so that we can be restored to a relationship with him. The Leviathan's power and dread also emphasize God's work in another way, because the Leviathan shows up in another book, the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 27.1 In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. I won't go too deeply here. The Isaiah passage is is a whole nother story. Uh, But some commentators argue that this description actually names three monsters that symbolize Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. Uh, So three, kind of um, two Leviathans and one one dragon. Uh, I originally thought it was just one creature. That interpretation actually does fit the context because Isaiah has just finished declaring judgment on many nations, including those three. But either way, the Lord declares himself in the testimony of scripture, creator and destroyer of Leviathan. That day in Isaiah 27 refers to the day of the Lord, which all of Isaiah describes, but uh, up to this point in the book, it's in the second half of chapter 2 and in chapters 24 through 27. This is the day of judgment on the wicked and rescue for the righteous. This is the day that the Lord will, in Isaiah 25, 8, it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Job 41 teaches emphatically and in great detail that the Lord made Leviathan and men cannot defeat it in battle. Later, Isaiah 27.1, and there's also a mention in Psalm 74, I'll just point to that here, identify the Lord as the only one who can destroy Leviathan. Centuries after these books were written, the earth received the arrival of someone who is fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus, the perfect hero who has the authority and power to slay the dragon and command the raging sea, who took on mortal flesh to become the atoning sacrifice for sin. Leviathan illustrates the greatness of God as maker and redeemer. So how would this inform a retelling of the folktale hospital in the storeworm? My observations felt a little bit dull, a little bit maybe anticlimactic after uh, how beautiful those passages are. But I think a biblically-minded artist could benefit from imitating a few things. First, the level of detail and specificity in Job 41. We know exactly how scary this creature is. Neck and teeth and fiery breath and a heart of stone and it stirs up the deep like a pot, like a pot of ointment. Similes, metaphors, and finely tuned details build up this monster to intensify the drama of the battle and the thrill of victory. If you have a storeworm in your retelling, whether it's a literal creature or maybe something metaphorical, mechanical, like spaceship, something like that, make sure your audience knows exactly how hard it will be to defeat in precise detail. Second, failed attempts. I tried to make this clear in my own iteration of the tale. Knowing how many people have tried and failed to defeat the monster intensifies the crescendo of victory. Third, the paradox of the weak overcoming the strong. This is a very Christian paradox. In this tale, the monster is so great that it can only be defeated by cunning from the inside, the way that Christ defeated death by going into death. Um, The important difference being that slaying the dragon was not the difficult thing for the Lord. It was rescuing us that uh, made Christ take on the weakness of a mortal human body. Battles in which equally strong armies use equally strong weapons against each other, or powerful foes that just shoot identical lasers at each other in a single combat, are not as interesting as the paradox of the small challenging the mighty. The weaker hospital is in human terms, the more incapable and wounded and outmatched, the more stunning his triumph can be. Third image, the battle in the beast. I couldn't help thinking of this point of the Disney animated version of Pinocchio when they're stuck in the whale and they they light a fire to get out and it's actually very scary. It makes me wonder if the makers of that movie knew about this fairy tale or maybe the motif of a beast who is defeated by uh, having a fire lit inside of it is more common than I ever knew. As I mentioned, the image of the hero who enters into the monster to defeat it echoes the image of Christ entering into death to defeat it. Christ's sacrifice was beautifully foreshadowed by the book of Jonah, the runaway prophet who tried to escape obedience and got swallowed by a big fish. I'm always intrigued when a fairy tale has a specific certain detail because the the form of this genre is so simple. So why does it matter that Aspidal lit the creature's liver on fire? There may be a couple of reasons, but I looked it up, and in the Hebrew imagination, the the biblical imagination, the liver is the seat of the emotions. The idea of being consumed by fiery emotions is a very powerful one and maps perfectly onto the idea of a battle won by cunning. If an enemy is too strong to defeat by battle, tricking him into basically defeating himself is, is very reasonable. It's a haunting image, the devourer who's devoured from the inside. 
There are a lot of great images for how sin affects us. For example, in the Snow Queen episode I released a few weeks ago, Kimberly Ireton and I looked at how sin isolates and imprisons us like a frozen palace. The storeworm's death reminds me of how sin consumes us like the appetite of a dragon, never giving back anything of value and destroying all that's good. The redemptive opposite of that devouring sin is, I think, twofold, a surrender, a giving in to divine mercy instead of a taking and taking, and even more so, a self-sacrifice that images the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. If you retell this tale, think about that image of devouring sin versus giving love. The storeworm and aspidal are more than enemies here. They're foils. The fire of the storeworm steals, kills, and destroys versus aspidal's fire, which is self-sacrificial. He's endangering himself, and it brings restoration and healing to the whole country. Whatever creative decisions you might make in a retelling, whatever character flaws or problems that Aspital has, because of course he's human, he needs to have his problems, and whatever innovations you might make in the nature of the Leviathan or the sea dragon, the setting, the other characters, and in the action of the story, I would work to keep that contrast of devouring versus self-sacrifice. Second, the etiological aspect of the storeroom's teeth becoming the islands and the body becoming Iceland. I love this. I think you can definitely keep it in a retelling, but I don't think you have to. The fun thing is that that part of the tale takes this story of long ago events and people and suddenly makes it localized and recognizable in the modern world, kind of a re-enchantment. You can make this tale into a different origin story if you want to. Uh, I could see a dystopian retelling that leads to some kind of a new life, a new creation for the world, a science fiction story that starts a new era of discovery and exploration. Even if you don't create this story as an origin story for Iceland and the islands, I would try to keep preserve and keep its regional and cultural specificity as much as possible. So if you're not in Scotland, if you put this in a different part of the world or the part of the galaxy, Aspidal is going to have to use something other than peat. That's very British. It'll have to be something that fits that new place. Anyway, those are my thoughts on this really wonderful dragon slaying story. Thanks for listening. Join next time to hear more about retelling fairy and folk tales in the light of scripture. If you like the podcast, please rate and review because that helps others find it too.